Hello. Hi, Jen. Hey, Sari. Hey, so I'm calling so we can plan for Hannah Gadsby's interview on your show. Are you nervous? I know you're so starstruck. Uh, I really am so starstruck. <laughs> I love Hannah. For those who don't know her, which you should really get to know her, she is an Australian comedian. She got really big when her stand-up show Nanette hit Netflix uh, in 2018, and she just had a new special come out also on Netflix called Douglas. Both are incredible. Nanette brought me to tears, which I've told you. Yeah, me too. I'm wondering what you want to ask her about because there's so much to unpack there. I met Hannah before she became super famous in the United States. I met her um, on Rachel Maddow. Uh, one of Rachel's producers had gone to see Nanette and invited Hannah to come just watch the show be filmed. As Kismet would have it, it was the night that I was on Rachel's show talking about my book, Dear Madam President. Uh, you know, the point of my book of Dear Madam President was that women had run out of road trying to model themselves after men and women should create their own path. But I felt that, I felt like when I talked about the book, I was like, wah, 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 and that no one, I really had the sense that words were coming out of my mouth, but people would not understand me. Rachel had actually read the book, loved it. That was very reassuring, very validating. But then I met Hannah, who, I, you know, when I saw Hannah, I thought, there she is. This is what I'm talking about. She is rewriting the rules of comedy. And it was so reassuring and inspiring and validating because here's this woman who's on the literally on the other side of the world from me and in two very different sort of industries. We were having the same kind of reckoning in our own minds, and it made me feel that um, I wasn't wrong, and I wasn't alone, and I'm not cool enough to call her a kindred spirit, <laughs> but it did, but there was a little bit of a cosmic connection when you, you know, meet this woman from, this comedian from Tasmania, who's so different from you, yet thinking the same things. All right, let's yeah. do it. Okay, let's do it, sister. I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and this is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount. Hello, Hannah. Thank you so much. My pleasure. How are you doing? I'm actually overlooking the White House right now um, and at a hotel in Washington, D.C. Oh, I stayed at a hotel in Washington, D.C. that overlooked the White House. And I could see, I could see the White House on the bidet, if I, <laughs> but I didn't use the bidet. <laughs> but I could have. So you're literally the only comedian I can name who hasn't been a comedian for 30 years because I don't like it because it's not funny. It makes me, yeah, it can be very mean spirited and that comes at a cost always. Yeah. And I, I sort of feel like that's a shame for comedy because I think it's a really, really marvelous art form. Like I think, and it's an accessible art form. This is somebody's from a lower socioeconomic background. I had no access to theater, television, production, any of these sorts of, you know, creative industries. And I, I struggle with the written word. So to be able to stand up on stage and have an unmediated voice right. is, is, is spectacular. And that's what comedy provides. And it's, uh, considered in the, in the realm of low art, which means that it, you know, actually has a, has a constructive voice to offer. Mm -hmm. I challenge what comedy is, but, you know, humor is different. Humor is this malleable, fluid thing that, you know, shifts and changes. And I think the, the art form of comedy should reflect that. So humor sort of exists in the world and can 
be malleable and grow and change. And then comedy is just one form that it exists in the world. Is that? Yeah, like it's a, it's a really, you know, um, particularly in the US, it's uh, built around this idea of getting up in a group of virtually hostile strangers who have, you know, will heckle you and, you know, so you've got to race to the punchline. You've got to race to apologize for who you are because you're not a straight white man. So you have to explain yourself wherever you you, do, you dive off that normal. Yeah. So you have to, you know, as soon as you walk on stage and you're not what people expect, you have to apologize for that or you have to uh, aggressively counter argue that. And I'm neither aggressive or apologetic. So I sit in a, a weird um sort of world and I, I can do comedy I can do uh, you know I can I, as I say I, I you know I'm perfectly able to tear people new assholes sure, I can yeah. do that um I just don't like it I don't enjoy it I don't feel I don't feel like it's it's not a good feeling mm-hmm. afterwards and it's not where I'm from but you know the battleground that the stand-up comedy world has become means that that's really how you, you know you have to make your mark you know you get five minutes when you're a beginner right. and the people aren't there to see you they're to see the headliner later on in the show you get five minutes to do your bit and so i could do that short joke so i'm a disarming presence so you know and i slow the the pace down so that gives me a little room and i, I built built up my skills but as i moved through the ranks i became the headliner and that's when I really started to get angry about what comedy was because as the headliner, people mm-hmm. in Australia came to see a show because I was on the bill. And these were, you know, people who'd identified with my comedy, so they were, right. you know, there's a certain sort of uh, sentiment they were expecting. But before they get to me, they had to sit through, you know, a whole bunch of men who would invariably do rape right. jokes or, you know, um, just vague misogyny and so i'd be backstage you know and you'd hear people laughing because that's how crowds work like donald trump is not an orator like it's just mob mentality it's Mm -hmm. easy like if you use shock and bullying when you've got a microphone then it's really easy to manipulate a crowd you can have the rhythm use just rhythm of something funny and you'll make people laugh I'm not saying that, you know, it's easy in the sense you can stand up in front of anyone, but if you tap into people's, you know, fears or uh, into their, you know, hates, then you can rally a crowd quite easily. So I'd be backstage waiting to go on to do my comedy and I'd have to go in and I felt like I had to repair a group of people who had laughed at objectionable material. And I say repair because I've sat in crowds and laughed at things I didn't want to laugh at. Out of fear, like you know, how you'd be received if you didn't laugh, or no, it's just this idea. It's like you know, there's just one particular comic, uh, Jim Jeffries. He's quite a famous Australian export to the US now, and he again, I don't know him doing the rounds. He was doing the rounds of the you know the Edinburgh Fringe around the same time Mm -hmm. that I was, and he was you know doing much better than I was. No bitterness here, but I was sitting in the crowd (laughs) listening to him doing well. And he was inciting violence against lesbians, wow. like literally going, they deserve to be punched in the face. Like oh. that's that's his rhetoric. And he now claims he was joking. Of course he was joking. Yeah, right. <laughs> and of course he was joking. But, you know, when there, there are people in the audience who don't want it to be a joke, you know, where does the responsibility actually start? And he's trying to address that now. Um, I haven't 
kept a pace of that. Like, good luck to him. Um, <laughs> I just, I don't have time for men to explain to me what feminism is. I just don't have time for that. As useful as it would be, <laughs> so, I'm sure. I mean, they can explain it to each other, but invariably I think they should perhaps ask women. Anyway, so so I'd be sitting in those sorts of crowds and, and you'd be sitting amongst guys who are just like, yeah, let's punch them in the face. And, I, you know, you sit there and you're like, <laughs> yeah, punch us in and the face. And you're laughing at, yeah. yeah. So, and so what's that, what's that laughter about? Is it just fear to show? Fear. For me, like in that moment, it's fear. Like it's just like going, ha, ha, ha. You know, if, I, if you don't, like, because, you know, being comedians, they will, and I've been, uh, had that happen to me, you know, when you're not laughing at them, they'll just point at you, you know, what's right. the matter with you? What's with you, right. And that's certainly a section of the craft of comedy that I certainly cut my teeth against. And then there were, you know, other comics who you didn't felt like do You felt you had that. to repair the audience, you said. You said, like, to yeah. repair them is interesting. Yeah, so I'd have to come in and, and sort of, it's like calm the waters to suit right. me. Like, well, isn't that what I was doing to earn the right to be a headliner? Right. Like, is to not have to do that, not have to fight against that agitation. And, you know, I'm very careful, you know, to, to draw the, the line. It's not like I don't think people should say things. Like I don't, I'm not into censorship whatsoever, but I just think people need to care more. Like you just need to care. <laughs> like I just don't, like to, to ask someone to think about what they said and the effects it possibly has is not cancelling mm-hmm. their voice. Um, but I think in the world of comedy, what's happened is that comedians for too long have felt like comedy was just pretty much you in the room and you have the microphone and nobody talks back. Like if they heckle, you have the microphone, you're still right. louder and, you, you know, you can cut them down. Again, doesn't even have to be funny. It just has the, have the rhythm of funny and if you say it quick enough, people go, oh, you're quick-witted. Uh, it doesn't actually even make any sense. So... And now we have the internet, right? right? The internet, that that old chestnut. And uh, people ha- now have a voice. And so your room now extends far beyond the walls of a comedy club. People now have a voice in a discussion outside the room. And that means it's outside of the mob mentality. So there's necessarily going to be a shift in comedy, right. whether people take what I do seriously or not, whether I'm just completely shut out of the industry or not, it's going to change anyway because the room is not just the room you perform in. But you seem to have made a decision at some point as you're the headliner sitting there absorbing the bad comedy, the mean comedy, and then, you know, I wanted you to tell us about how Nanette came about because of that. I'm going to quote you from Nanette. Um, you say to understand what self-deprecation means for somebody who already exists in the margins, it's not humility, it's humiliation. And I simply will not do that anymore, not to myself or anybody who identifies with me. Is that what, as you're sitting in the backstage hearing the guys, is that what was sort of rising up in you? Was that the big objection that you wanted to repair? Yeah, there was uh, there was an actual moment that pushed me over the edge and it was a fairly soft moment in comparison to all the things that are built mm-hmm. up underneath, you know, sitting in a, you know, a hostile audience laughing at rape jokes about, you know, violence against lesbians, you know, that didn't push me over the edge. That was just surviving. The moment that just sort of did that, I was watching a friend of mine, who's a really lovely guy doing a set and he was doing material that's very similar to mine, but 
the framing of what he was talking about, he was talking about toxic masculinity and how that affected him, who's just someone who's not masculine enough. And I don't think that that's unworthy. I think that's a really interesting topic. But this is sort of being self-deprecating on stage and just going, oh, you know, I've got it hard. And and I just remember (laughs) he's my mate and I'm just like, I hate you. Like you don't have it hard because he was like, oh, this big guy at the gym and, you know, I wasn't the biggest guy in the gym and it's just like, ugh. And it just sort of pushed me over the edge of this, like, he could get up on stage and not explain himself. Like he just expected that everyone would understand his world, his experience in the world and identify with it. And to a large extent, he was right. People don't have to extend themselves to understand the straight white male story. We all know that story because that is the only story that really filters down to everybody. That's pretty much the story we all know. The the trials and tribulations of the straight white European man. And underneath that story is like everyone else has to tell their own stories to each other. There's a whole myriad of networks and intersections of others, you know, queers and, and women and disabled and trans. And not all of these groups are monolithic. You know, there's intersections across, you know, all these with people of color. And then they all intersect with the straight white male story, but the straight mm. white male story doesn't know that. Every other story has to use the straight white male story as a touchstone. Right. So right. How we can yes. intersect into that story. And they never, ever, ever look to the other stories right. and go, how can I intersect with those stories? And that's kind of what frustrated me. It's like, I mean, I'm borderline male, a straight white man. Like, I'm borderline. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, you know I, I, I'm on the cusp of getting all the privilege. But, um, <laughs> You know, like really, the only thing that I have is that I'm white, it's a huge and that's advantage. a huge yeah. advantage, absolutely huge. But as a queer woman, I get none of it because I just mm-hmm. couldn't be further from their world. I don't get anything from them. Right. They have nothing over me. Yeah, they can't manipulate me. I'm not interested in them, and that's only something I have recently, you know, come to see as a strength. For most of my life, that was a severe disadvantage. You know, yeah. And to be fair, like the reason I'm here is because there were, there are a handful of exceptions of that straight white men who've saw my worth and has, have nurtured me. And that's not recently. Like these, you know, my my manager is a straight white man, and and, and he he's what has been working with me mm-hmm. since I I began and has helped create spaces where I've been able to not just use my voice but find my voice um and that that's you know in the world of comedy that yeah. takes about 10 years so you don't you can't do it without the help mm-hmm. of those who right. have the power but i think it's for the benefit of everyone if those in power move aside and let other people like i just think you're poorer for your own ignorance and the only way to get rid of your own ignorance is to listen to the story stories of, of those people you aren't. At what point did you feel, because men don't have any hold over you, right? That sounds so liberating. Can you pinpoint a time where you're like, yeah. oh, wait a minute, <laughs> this means I don't give a shit about them and it liberates me. Did you have to reach a certain amount of power and success in your own career before you felt that way? Yeah. The way I best can explain that is like the fallout from the net, the kind of 
vitriol that I've, you know, been subjected Mm -hmm. to online is nothing new to me. I've heard it my entire life, but when I was younger, I heard it face to face by men who wanted to physically hurt me, whereas the, the, online I'm just getting the vague threats. We'll call them vague. And underneath all, all of the the threats and the mm-hmm. hatred that, that, you know, it all bubbles up. They use all sorts of ways to disguise the misogyny, but what keeps coming up is that you're a woman, you don't deserve to speak. I have a louder voice. I will shout you down. But when I was, I was younger, that's, that's an, an invulnerable, that's an incredibly dangerous space to be in. Right. But when I'm now got a, a voice and I'm hearing this, what I'm hearing is the the ways that they're trying to take me down pretty much all come back to their penis. And I'm like, I'm just not interested in your penis. I've never been interested in your penis. It has no relevance to me whatsoever. Their version of toxic masculinity, yeah. if you will, just doesn't. Like, I don't mind if they're vulnerable. I don't mind if they're strong. They just need to stop shouting at me and get out of my right. way. I just don't yeah, care. Right. You're not, like, they're, they are not your standard of how you. Yes. But as a, as a queer woman, that means that I don't get to connect to the power structure of the world for that so reason. So you went outside of the power structure. I mean, that's what I see. What I see is you, is, is a woman who then went outside of the power structure and created something different. Not surprisingly, you got a ton of blowback. Women who challenge power systems do, but it doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. Yeah, what sort of got me was the, you know, the anger. When I wrote Nanette, I did not expect it to be a hit. I expected it to be a swan song (laughs) because it was confronting. It was, you know, breaking all the rules of comedy. So when I set out to do that, I expected to lose my audience that I'd slowly gathered over the course of my 10-year career. What it did was the absolute opposite. Now, that I expected it not to work is the one thing that I have in common with my detractors. Mm. But the difference is is that there was an audience involved in this dynamic and quite a large yeah. one that said, yes, yes, this is what we like. And this, this audience is outside of the US. It's, it's all over the world. I have, you know, people in India, in Spain, in South America loved Nanette. And mm-hmm. that is really wonderful to me because I grew up in a really isolated pocket of the world. So to feel connected to a whole world is just something on my terms. Feels incredible. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll keep talking with the comedian Hannah Gadsby. Welcome back. I'm talking to Hannah Gadsby, who released her second Netflix special, Douglas, earlier this year. You said earlier that you're not, you feel like you're not good at the written word. Then if you're not, do you not write your performances? I mean, do you do not write Douglas? Do you not write Nanette? I mean, you, there, you take us on such a journey and you make us, you explain to us exactly what's going to happen and you lay it all out and it's so purposeful each step. How do you do it if it's not the written word or do you not just consider the performance to be the written word? Yeah, performance is not written words. It's um, spoken words. It lives for a time on the page. Sometimes I'll wrangle it on the page, but most of the time my writing occurs or really becomes comedy on stage, you know, because then I am reacting to an mm-hmm. audience. When there's a room full of people, there's a community going on. And the, the stand-up com- comedian's job is to make, connect the yeah. audience. 
to make them feel as one so they all laugh at the same thing. And, and it's a hugely cathartic experience to laugh yes. as one. It is. That's why comedy is special. That's why it's important. That's why I think it's a shame that most people, you know, a lot of people avoid it because it's toxic. Right. Because it ultimately, you know, it, I've said this recently, it's like it's kind of like church. Yes. I mean, um, the idea with- of laughing at the big group of people right now just sounds so necessary, <laughs> needed, you know, the, to have the chance to do that. It's been a really long time. Yeah. So, it, and there's a reason why I miss yeah. it. I mean, every show that I've written, I've written quite a mm-hmm. few, um, sort of takes shape in different mm-hmm. ways. And my process begins with trying to find an underpinning structure to hang everything mm-hmm. off. So with Nanette, it was about the callback. And the callback is a a really fun tool in comedy. And it's one I've used all my life as a way of trying to connect in social groups. I have autism, so I have a really difficult time doing that. And the way that I discovered doing that you know, I'd just be listening. You know, people watching wouldn't think that I'd be participating in the conversation because I wouldn't say anything. Mm-hmm. But I'd be listening, taking absolutely everything in. And But what I would do then is, like, the conversation would be about one thing and then it'd move on to another. And in order to participate, what I would do is connect the two. So oh. during the second conversation, I would say, well, that's like the first, and they're like, oh, and everyone's like, because it's familiar but it's it's a, that's a similar premise as a right. callback. So I was doing it as a way of participating in, you know, just general conversations before I was ever a comedian. And I feel I like Douglas comedy, is a master piece of that. No, no. Nanette is that, but I subvert it. So with Nanette, I tell the funny story and then I subvert right. it and go, well, this is what you were actually laughing about. So I subverted the callback. Yeah. Um, but in Douglas... What I did, I'm nerding out. No, on let's here. See, I mean, Douglas I love this shit. Co- like, I just, the creative process, I'm like, let's hear it. <laughs> Douglas was completely the opposite because what I did with Douglas was, you know, in the net, I was saying comedy is about surprise, humor is about okay. surprise. If you're not expecting something, you get surprised. Mm-hmm. So you laugh, like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> but that's not the only form of, of humor, we'll call it, because my favorite sort of joke the one that gives me the most life in day-to-day living is the shared joke, right, the running joke, the private Mm -hmm. joke, which means you create something that's Mm -hmm. not funny to anybody else if you weren't there at the beginning. And so it just folds in on itself. So in a way, Douglas is a call forward, a sequence of call forwards. I start, I call all the jokes at the beginning in order to create that, you know, sort of in a way to try and create that, artificially with a group of strangers. It's like beginning cold, but then we share, you know, I I introduce little layers and little layers so then they become a shared joke. The jokes at the end are really, really, really cascadingly funny, but they don't get to be that way without the beginning of the show. So you create a little community. Right, you can never explain it to somebody who didn't, you know, they have to, you have to see the whole thing. If you don't want me to say this, we can take it out. But you tell me there's going to be a Louis C.K. joke and you're going to forget about it when it happens. And I'm like, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm going to, I'm going to know it when it happens. I'm going to know when it happens. And then it happens. And I didn't know it when it happened. And you just, like, it, the. Cold. Oh, you just, it's (laughs) so, it's so well crafted. And was also, I found a little uplifting. Did you want that? Was that important to you? Did you yeah, do that? Yeah, that was kind of, you know, when I say I start a show out with a certain structure, in my head that appears as a visual. And what that is is like the structure is what I'm thinking about 
as something that can hold an idea or a feeling I want to create. My whole life as, as a woman on the spectrum, I've really struggled to make connections. And I found stand-up comedy as a way of translating how I feel or things that I'm struggling with into a, you know, external uh, environment. And I've never been able to do that um, successfully. And I still struggle on an interpersonal level to a certain extent, although I, I continue to improve. Um, you know, so there are things that I wanted to make the audience feel in the net and I succeeded. Yeah. That was, yeah, that is a whoosh of a. Yeah. And uh, uh, these are, these are like that deep shame and that destabilizing is something that, you know, I've lived through my whole, and I could never. And what I worked out was it's not just what you say, it is how you mm -hmm. say it. And it's not just about tone of voice. It's everything. It's what comes yeah. before it. It's the, the 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 meter of how you speak and what people are expecting, and then playing with those expectations, and then taking charge of disappointing those expectations. Yeah, I mean, you have to really um, lead the audience on that journey, and you do it. I mean, there's parts that are brutal, but you're very careful about controlling. I felt like you were very even because I saw Nanette. I'm super cool. I saw Nanette in person, like in a live audience. <laughs> and, you know, I saw that it was different than the, the recorded show because you did it differently because it was a different group of people. But it was like, I felt like you were holding the whole audience in your arms almost to bring us along on this ride. And it was going to be uncomfortable for a while and it's going to be wild. But I felt like you had laid down that you were going to be a good caretaker for us and very deliberately yeah, so like very deliberate that's the structure i'm talking about that's the structure i'm talking about when i go into writing a show and this is the the way that sort of stand-up works as an industry because most people get their start just doing five minute spots and then they go into clubs and they trial out five minute spots and there's nothing wrong with this it's just the way it is and then when they do a special it's kind of like an, an assembly of all those five minute mm -hmm. spots and the way I tend to work, I don't, and particularly now that I've sort of got a bit more freedom to work as I wish, I, uh, there's not a lot of my stuff that work as five-minute spots. Right. They're shows yeah. written to be sort of talking and, and holding a certain idea or ideas and certain feelings as as a way of really, you know, it ultimately comes down to trying to, to connect like uh, that's the theme the constant theme in all my work is is trying to be understood trying to feel a connection stick with us we'll be right back we're back with hannah gadsby among the things that you say in Nanette, um, that really resonated with me was, so by the time I identified as being gay, it was too late. I was homophobic. And that sounds, you know, some people can't reconcile the idea that you can be both gay and homophobic, but I certainly know as a woman, you can just, you can be a woman and carry a lot of sex, uh, gender bias in your own head against yourself and against other women and internalize all of that. I think that happens across any any intersection. Right. You know, it happens in 
in the disability community. It happens in in various, you know, different racial uh, groups. It's that, you know, when you have a monolithic or a pretend monolithic culture talking down, like you absorb that. It's very difficult to change the rules of a world when that world and its rules shaped you. Yeah, right. And the people that you grew up with and love and are your family are part of that, like as you experienced, right? And yeah, Tasmania in the in the eighties and nineties is was like a microcosm of what what's happening now is, in a certain yeah. way, because it, you know there was environmental groups clashing with industry. Mm-hmm. The indigenous Tasmanians were really struggling to be even be acknowledged that that they existed, mm-hmm. and there was gay law reform and. It was a real hotbed of intolerance, and I grew up around yeah. that. And when when you say you grow, you're not aware of these tensions. Right. You know, you, you you just absorb them. And for me, what's interesting, a, a really interesting way of looking at that in terms of what's happening in the world today is, I took most of my adult life. You know, that's how long it took me to undo the sort of misogyny and homophobia that it has sort of wrapped me up. But when you think about that, I had a vested interest in undoing that as a as a queer woman. So, to my mind, oh. just using logic, right? I'm still wrapped up in quite a considerable amount of racism because I, as a white person, I've never had to think about the color of my right. skin. For me, that's a really profound way of understanding your own ignorance without having, you know, like it just, like when I think about the amount of work and, you know, all the microaggressions and all these sorts of things and the, the macroaggressions right. of being a, a queer woman and trying to undo those sort of, those deep-seated ideas that I'm less. Yes. And I, I've, you know, I've, Feel like I've I've done a lot of that untangling, but I think that's because I'm, I am of those identities. To realize how hard it would, how hard it is if you were to do, take that on with race as well, or just how deep well, it uh, is as, as a yeah. We, whatever I mean, as a as a white person, mm-hmm. just understanding that inevitably they must be wound up. Right. In my worldview, there is necessarily racism. Mm-hmm. As part of my worldview, I it just it just doesn't seem reasonable to expect that that isn't layered into my perspective because I've benefited. From, I've never had to think about the color of my right, skin right, ever. Right, right. Whereas every day I have to think about my sexuality right, right, and my right. so that gives you a gender. sense of how big a deal it is. A sense of uh, just not, but also on the person the side of my own ignorance, right, right. like. I don't think that it's possible for a white person, honestly, to say in the Western world that they're not racist. I think what's yeah, what's a more helpful idea of framing that is like, I don't want to be right. racist. Right. And that's honestly where we're at. That's the first yeah. step. You, you just think of a man saying, I'm not misogynist. Right. Well, what's, what do you right. hear? What you hear is, ba 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 Right. Right. And the problem is when you assert I am not racist because you believe you don't hold racist views in your heart, then you think you can't possibly have racial biases. 
Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. That's that's what I'm right. talking about. And uh, so I found that, you know, my experiences have helped me not understand the specific struggles of people of color. But it gives you a sense of how but, hard the struggle is because you had to do it in your own life. Yeah. yeah. From Nanette to Douglas, it seems a little lighter. Yeah. The result of Nanette that I never, ever anticipated mm-hmm. was the was the displacing of of trauma. Like I honestly thought that the, the trauma was going to dominate. Yeah, the effects of trauma was going to dominate my life. This is like accumulative PTSD mm-hmm. on top of all sorts of other situations. But having my story heard and to a certain segment of the the, the audience welcomed yeah. was it has it does to feel part of a community has a healing effect, and that is part of the recovery of trauma. Necessarily, you have to feel safe. In, in in the world that you have to navigate. And when you can't communicate your pain, then other people can't help share it. And I was able to do that, and I feel like there's been a sense of healing around that. I, I don't think that people should go to the lengths that I went to in order to shed their trauma. Like that's it's kind of extreme mm-hmm. and impossible for everybody to do, but... I'd like to think that what I did, you know, has helped other people do it in the scale of their lives. I've certainly had people reach out and say they've watched it with their family and it helped communicate sort of this pain that particularly queer women have have felt. And that, that, you know, that... That's a big deal. You know, even even if, you know, like I'm just a blip and I'm forgotten and in the future no one ever writes about what I did... I feel like I'm all right. Like that, that is kind of enough. Yeah, it's pretty big. That is kind of actually incredible to to help ease the pain of strangers. It's a real honor from where I stand. Yeah. I feel like you took us on a journey with Douglas and I just want to see what happens next. Well, I'm writing my, I'm right. I'm penning. penning. I'm penning my memoir. <gasps> penning my How's memoir. How's that going? Um, it's really difficult. Yeah. I'm a very big believer in, the way that you tell your story doesn't just shape the way that other people see you. It shapes the way you see mm-hmm. yourself. The, the stories you tell shape how you see yourself. Um, and yes. if you tell yourself a destructive story, then that has a destructive effect, you know, and that's certainly how what, you know, I tried to undo with Nanette was like I was telling these stories mm-hmm. in a way that helped other people process it without feeling my pain. And I, you know, and, that was the wrong way to tell those stories, you know. So you're holding back this sense of shame and and self censorship and and writing a memoir. That's just what do you choose? What about, I don't know what people are interested in. What do you like, choose? What do you choose? Because it does. You give it so much more importance. Just the act of choosing it makes it more important. Also, uh, you know, I'm on the spectrum, so I'm trying to reveal an emotional landscape that will feel foreign to a lot of people. And trying to convey that that is actually my emotional landscape. But how can I describe my emotional landscape in a way that doesn't, you know, subvert my own emotional landscape in order for other people to feel my To access it, to feel like that they can my world. it. Right, you right. Know, how can I possibly, I live in an entirely different world. How can I possibly explain it without um, 
dishonoring it or ch- or changing yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, so, we'll, so we're going to see memoirs from you soon. Hopefully, yes. And I'm working on a few bits and bobs. I'm I'm actually I this is a terrible time in the world. Yeah. And so there's a certain sense of anxiety that hangs over I think pretty much anyone with a heart. Yep. And I include myself amongst them. But for me personally, I've never had this amount of day-to-day stability in my adult life. My life's been, you know, before comedy was was mm-hmm. really unstable for, you know, all the wrong reasons. And then once I started to experience a bit of success in comedy, it became unstable for all the, you know, reasonable mm-hmm. reasons, mm-hmm. you know, just constantly moving and touring and changing. And then I've been in the one place for, I think, what is it, eight months now? And I've never had that in my mm-hmm. life. And it's been nice for me. I, I really have huge social anxiety and, you know, difficulty in the world. Like I am sensitive to sound and, you know, airports are really distressing places for me. And I'm just feel really good physically because I'm not having to do that. To do that. So it means that I'm able to engage really, really intellectually in the anxiety of this current. Oh, <laughs> okay. So something rich is going to come. That's even better. Hannah, thank you so much. Thank you. I'm like super excited to see what's coming out next from. Me too. My pleasure. Thank Thank you. you. Bye. Sarah, are you there? I am still here. I'm a bit overwhelmed by that conversation. It was so interesting. Oh, I'm so glad. Hannah is just so smart and thoughtful and you can just tell how much she's thought about her life and the world around her. She has used art to deal with her own trauma. That's been very liberating for her. It's been really healing for millions of people in the world, but it's also just really interesting to hear her talk about the, you know, comedy as an art form, comedy as a business, comedy as something that's ever changing. You know, she just has thought really deeply about this stuff. I was just thinking, like, unlike you, I actually have always been a fan of comedy. And I, when I got older, had this like realization that some of the things that I was laughing at and about and some of the, my favorite comedians, I wasn't really comfortable with what I was laughing at. And you, you don't question those things until you start to question those things. And you think you're doing something wrong if you do question them, right? And what I didn't expect was that I knew she would have interesting things to say about her own experience. And, you know, as a queer woman that's experienced a lot of trauma, I didn't expect her to be as thoughtful about, um, other marginalized people or about she clearly thinks really deeply about people outside of herself, people who are very different from herself and, you know, how the world would be much better if um, more people had that opportunity to be, to be heard. But um, I also find it liberating and inspiring to hear her talk about her version of success where, you know, she doesn't care if she's on a certain kind of career path or, Mm track. Yeah, she's not playing you know, anyone else's game. That I love she's that. She's not playing anyone else's game. And then she seems pretty satisfied, you know, taking her big projects, focusing on them, spending a lot of time on them and not getting distracted by shiny things that say this is what a successful comedian does. And I think that's probably, that's a good lesson for me, certainly, because mm-hmm. I try to balance way too me many too. projects. <laughs> because it turns out there's a reason why she became a worldwide phenomenon. <laughs> exactly. Because she's really uh, and, smart. And I was 
giggling in my seat as I was listening to you the whole time. All right, sister. Well, um, talk to you I just got soon. a text. I just got a text from Mary Trump saying she'd love to be on the podcast. Yes. So. <laughs> well, get her on. We can, we'll tee that up next, friends. <laughs> Stay tuned. Stay tuned. <laughs> Thank you to Hannah Gadsby. If you like this episode of Just Something About Her, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcasts app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Allie Rogers is our associate producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castor-Russell is our executive producer. Just Something About Her is a podcast from The Recount. 